0: You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource.
1: Our guest today has an investing mantra. He asks himself and others, What's your return on time? One doesn't simply want more income, he says. The ultimate goal is to live a great life as the outcome. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Keith Weinholt began investing in Anchorage, Alaska with a fourplex. He lived in one unit and rented out the other three. Since 2002, he has owned income-producing real estate in the US and Latin America, 20 years now as an investor. And he says wealth is not acquired simply by putting one's money to work either. Few people know that. He says one acquires wealth by ethically employing other people's money, or OPM. And Keith is here on The Real Well Show to explain that to us. So, Keith, welcome back. It's great to have you here.
0: Kathy, thanks so much for having me back. It's been a few years.
1: Yeah, it has. And this is really good timing to have you here because these are unprecedented times. And I'm just so curious about how you're handling it and what you're seeing out there.
0: Yeah, there are so many aberrations in the general economy For example, we've had two consecutive quarters of GDP contraction, which is a classic recession signal, but yet people still can't decide whether we're currently in a recession or not. And then there are probably even more unusual aberrations with the housing market. Is the housing market healthy? Is it unhealthy? And I think a whole lot of it really depends on who you
1: are. It is confusing because... With the two quarters of negative GDP, we also had the highest job growth, at <laughs> 4- 520,000 new jobs or something, a lot, when the average had been about 195,000 new jobs per month uh, prior to 2020. So it's hard to imagine a recession with that much job growth, but I do. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're 100% right. That's just a great example of an economic aberration. We have seen, you know, really a lot of these big tech companies, Kathy, that make a lot of the headlines, like Meta, which is a parent company of Facebook, and Microsoft and Netflix. They have either cut their staff or they have really slowed their hiring. And they're the big companies that make a lot of headlines. But with what we're seeing in some of the latest jobs report is all kinds of other economic sectors from hospitality to manufacturing, they are hiring people. And with all this hiring and these strong jobs numbers and a three and a half percent unemployment rate, some people say, oh, wait a second, how in the heck can we really be in a recession? And some people don't realize that. It's actually human beings that sit around and decide officially whether we're in a recession or not. It's the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research. Yeah, like this is some sort of judge sport, like Olympic figure skating or something. Human beings actually sit around sometimes months or even years after the fact, and then they go back and say, yeah, that actually was a recession or was not a recession (laughs) in 2022. So maybe
1: we won't know for a few years. Right.
0: Yeah, we don't really know. And aberrations certainly extend to the housing market like I've touched on previously. And, you know, I think I really have interesting news. Like if someone doesn't know what's happened with the housing market and they haven't checked in on it for three years and they come back to today, you know, what I actually like to tell people, Kathy, is that the probability of a housing crash is 100% certain, 100% certain. And maybe some people are like, well, well, what are you talking about? Are are you clairvoyant or something? How could you say that anything like that is 100% certain? And that is because the housing crash, it already happened. This era's housing crash occurred in April of 2020. It was (laughs) not a housing price crash it was a housing supply crash. April of 2020 was that inflection point where the available units of housing failed to make its seasonal rebound and it continued to plummet down, down, down. So to take a look at the data, to tell you what I'm talking about with this housing supply crash that took place, I'd like to look at the FRED data. Maybe you've seen that data out there, those FRED charts, by the way, that stands for Federal Reserve Economic Data. And that shows us that the active listing count has been about one and a half million, just per this particular measure that I'm talking about here. And that is currently about 600. 100,000 available units of supply. So that's the 60% housing supply crash that I'm talking about. So it's this paltry supply, this dearth of supply is really what has driven so much of the behavior in the housing market, including the torrid price run up. So yes, the probability of a crash is 100%. That's because it already happened, a housing supply crash, which is really a hedge against a price crash.
1: Right, that's that's so true. And it's so important that people read the article and not just look at the headline of these news stories. I, I just had a talk with my news writer for my other podcast, Real Estate News, because she, she put some data in there that she was seeing elsewhere. And it was like, inventory's up 30%, and, you know, that can be misleading, and people can think, oh, no, the market's getting flooded with with housing, just like in 2009, and nobody wants it. It couldn't be more opposite. And and I said, no, no, we got to dive in a little deeper into the realtor.com data that they they track the inventory uh, pretty regularly and it, it, literally houses are selling one day longer than they did a year ago. Right. A year ago, they were selling like that. And inventory is is not anywhere ne- where it needs to be because people are staying in their homes longer. They're locked into these incredibly low interest rates. Why would they ever leave? So when you see sales plummeting, it's like, ah, nobody wants to buy houses. No, 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 no. There's just not much to buy.
0: Exactly right. Yeah, there's just not much to buy. So with the example I gave with one and a half million units of available supply historically, I let you know that there are about 600,000 units now by that measure. If that will go from 600,000 units up to 660,000 units, well, it's still a gross undersupply, but you could still say supply is up 10% in, in say, one year or something, and, and people get the wrong idea because we're so yeah. far from having a, a balanced
1: housing market. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, news reporters need to understand that they can still freak people out if that's their intention. Right. Just just give the truth, you know, freak people out that there's not enough housing out there. And, you know, it'll be a different story, but a more truthful one. And of course, some markets are are behaving differently than others, as they always do. So let's talk about that. Where What are you doing today under this kind of environment?
0: Well, there's a few things that I'm doing. I mean, if you want to talk about particular markets in Florida, I'm seeing property insurance premium increases that are substantial. So on my own portfolio, I'm trying to get rent increases commensurate with those insurance increases enough to cover them. And oftentimes with this price run up that we've had in real estate nationally, we have not yet had a commensurate rent increase run up. So it's really lately in the Midwest, some of those Midwestern markets where we're seeing the better ratio of rent income to purchase price because some of the Southeastern markets seem to have run up in price faster than those in the Midwestern markets. And yeah, Kathy, with the market dynamics, I kind of think of things in two waves. First, there's a housing price run-up, which we've seen the past couple years. And then there's a lag time, and then rents, struggle and eventually do catch up with house prices and in the middle of those two waves there's a trough and when you're in that trough that's typically when there's the lowest uh, there's the lowest profitability for a real estate investor because prices have already run up but rents have not yet and what really creates that what causes those two waves? i'm just talking about things on a national basis now as prices run up and now higher mortgage interest interest rates have fueled this lower affordability, well, that continues to take people out of that first way. That continues to take people out of that home buyer pool, and they go into the renter pool. So that's why I expect rental occupancy to be up, rental vacancy to be down, and rents to continue increasing at faster than historic norms. So rents need to catch up with prices.
1: Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, Um, The one thing, you know, when you said earlier about the Midwest, everything is so sick, everything is so cyclical, it seems, because when you see this frenzy in the sand states, right, Florida, Arizona, Nevada, California, this isn't new, you know, this, this happened last time, people just, just. Just jump all over each other trying to get property and bidding things up in these markets until it peaks, until affordability is completely out of whack. And then people say, "Okay, enough is enough. We're going to go where it's more affordable. And then the Midwest starts to really pop. Um, You know, that's when I started investing in Dallas, when California was so uh, on fire in terms of pricing, uh, back in the mid 2000s, and and Dallas was like just starting its boom. So I agree with you there that there's some really great opportunity. Also, what I love about the Midwest is a lot of builders didn't go there, so you've still got the problem with lack of supply, but you just don't have new supply coming on. Uh, but interesting, I want to hear more about the insurance in Florida. Uh, I have not seen that happen with my Florida properties. So what's where are your properties and what kind of insurance premiums are you seeing?
0: Yeah, and um, this is really just something with sort of older existing properties that I'm seeing with newer build Florida properties that are built to newer codes. Yeah, I'm not seeing the torrid increases in insurance premiums there. It's with those older existing homes that were built on older building codes. I've seen a doubling of my insurance premiums. From talking to my providers there, including in the Tampa, St. Pete area, some insurance providers just aren't providing coverage in Florida at all anymore. So we're talking about lack of a housing supply before. We're getting less of a supply of those that will uh, provide insurance on Florida properties, especially for those older homes. So um, that's where I'm seeing some problems there. Fortunately, we are in this environment where I can get rent increases that help offset that. But, you know, Kathy, one word that we've each brought up here a few times, and I think it's really important to speak to, is the affordability, a place where we've really seen a constraint lately, whether we're in in Florida or the Midwest or whatever market that we're talking about. So I'd really like to talk about that affordability component.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, where do you find it?
0: it? Exactly. It keeps shrinking. It keeps shriveling up. by some measures, the average payment that a homeowner needs to make to buy the median-priced home is up 50% when you have this combination of higher prices and higher mortgage interest rates. And I'm going to say something that sounds paradoxical, much like I talked about how there's a 100% chance of a housing crash before. You know, Kathy, a lot of people are telling me when they hear me talk, they often hear me say things that they wouldn't expect to hear. For example, there is a housing crash. It was a supply crash, not a price crash. Another thing that surprises people is this thing that they would not expect when we talk about affordability and that is the fact that higher mortgage interest rates typically correlate with higher home prices not lower home prices. Almost everyone thinks it's the opposite. I think it's rather rational to think, oh, well, wait a second, higher mortgage interest rates, that means lower affordability because that makes for a greater payment. So wouldn't that correlate negatively with house prices? No, actually it is just the opposite. In, in fact, since 1994, there have been nine different times when there's been a substantial mortgage interest rate increase as defined as an increase of 1% or more. And during those nine rate increase periods over the last 28 years, real estate prices have increased seven of those nine times. And maybe you, the listener, the viewer there, if you're wondering, well, wait, I still have a hard time getting my head wrapped around this. Like, what environment would things actually look like in where there are higher mortgage interest rates and higher prices? How about right now, right where you are today. Because in the last year and a half, we've seen higher home prices and we've generally seen higher mortgage interest rates over the past one and a half years. It's been going on now. And that confounds a lot of people. It's not so much that higher rates create higher prices, it's that you know today's economy is a little bit usual, but typically when you have higher mortgage interest rates, that often means that the Fed is raising the Fed funds rate as well. What they need to do is cool off a hot economy where a lot of people are employed. And people typically make purchase decisions, not principally based on what the mortgage rate is, they tend to make it based on their life situation. So the point is that you know people make purchase decisions based on the strength of the economy in the amount of income that they have. You know, people want to buy a home when they feel stable in their job. That's really the principal consideration more so than mortgage interest rates. Conversely, when rates are being cut, that typically means that the economy is doing poorly because the economy needs support. So when mortgage rates are going down, that actually increases the chances somewhat that real estate prices are not going to run up as fast. And that is rather counterintuitive to people. But the short story is that the condition of the economy and the American consumer and them feeling confident in their job has more to do with a home purchase decision than what that mortgage interest rate is. Mortgage interest rates still matter. It's just not the primary consideration.
1: Yeah, if the economy is booming and people are making money, you're going to see inflation generally, and usually mortgage rates go along with that until the Fed turns it around. But the last two years, we've had low rates, and it certainly affected housing, right? Prices went up dramatically.
0: It sure has, yeah. And even today, of course, mortgage interest rates are not historically high. Uh, We look at all these increases that the Fed has made to the federal funds rate. Maybe it seems like a high federal funds rate, which is basically just a base rate that a lot of other interest rates are based off of. It might seem high today, but right now the federal funds rate is just back where it was at the end of 2018. So, you know, anyone (laughs) that thought zero federal funds rates were going to persist for a while, you know, needs to remember that, well, that was really an emergency measure enacted by the Fed
1: absolutely yeah that's what is kind of interesting about this whole thing is that mortgage rates are still historically pretty low especially right now they went down again and and then the fed fund rate we were here we were here just a few years ago at this same rate and there wasn't so much freaking out it's just the speed of change that uh, i think right. you know is is scary for people and certainly yeah. with mortgages right where, where when you when you have increased uh, interest with already high home prices, then it's so it's what fifty percent less affordable today than it was just a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, that's really substantial. But yeah, yeah, Kathy, you and I have been investing in long enough so that we do understand the historical context. In fact, the first property that I ever bought in my life, it was a fourplex where I lived in one unit and rented out the other three. That was back in 2002. And think about where we're at now with mortgage rates. It's about 5% for an owner occupied residence, maybe 6% for a non-owner occupied. Well, back in 2003, I took that fourplex building that I had only owned for a year and I refinanced from six and three eighths down to five and three eighths. So the point was like five and three-eighths was attractive enough to refinance to it. <laughs> when people see a rate like that today, they think maybe they need to get away from it or something. So, you know, it's all about your own historical context and you're you're getting some here now.
1: Oh, yeah, we started at the sevens, and we're so happy to refight to six. And I remember when my dad was in the double digits, and he was just jumping for joy when he got down to 9%. But of course, that was in the 80s. Ah, oh, so where are you targeting now? Are there certain areas of the country where you would invest today if you were buying?
0: Yeah, I've really liked Florida the last few years. I mean, just personally, that's where I've focused a lot of my own buying. But yeah, classically, it's these markets in the Midwest and South. I like residential. Residential tends to do well in a downturn. Um, Even in a recession, historically, you don't see residential real estate prices slip very much. So yeah, I really stick with residential always have, always have. And, um, you know, I'm really just a a buy and hold investor. I'm not doing anything sophisticated. I I don't have handyman skills. I don't particularly have landlording skills either. Um, But a lot of lay people just don't understand with buy and hold real estate investing, often it's uh, what people classify as turnkey real estate investing that I do still buying directly myself. A lot of people don't understand that I characterize it that real estate typically has five profit centers just with buy and hold real estate investing, appreciation, cash flow, your return on amortization because your tenant's paying that loan for you. Uh, fourthly are the tax benefits. And then fifthly are those inflation profiting benefits that you get on the long-term fixed interest rate debt. Of course, I want to get that debt. I'm always buying with debt, a 75 or 80% loan in order to get the benefits of inflation debasing that debt for me. So it's buy and hold in the Midwest and South. Those areas where you tend to get a high ratio of rent income to purchase price. You know, it's really not that thrilling or not that fancy <laughs> or you're not going to hear about me, you know, pouring sweat equity into some 90 day flip where I made 200K. You know, investing ought to be pretty boring when I'm paid five ways there are so many different dynamics, some are up, some are down, and that's what I do. So in a sense, it's it's pretty boring.
1: Yeah, and any one of those five things would be wonderful. You know, if if all you got was somebody paying down your mortgage for you, That'd be great, you know. But then you add on, well, there's tax benefits on top of that. Oh, wait. And the house value could go up while someone else is paying off the debt for me. You know, there's yeah, it's any one of those would be wonderful.
0: Yeah. So, and it's interesting. Those that come from the consumer credit world, I mean, they're just trying to, to buy low and sell high, which is actually harder to do than it sounds over the long term. And um, you know, maybe if you're a stock investor, you get paid a second way, maybe in addition to the appreciation, if you get a dividend paying stock, okay, you might get paid two ways at the same time. Uh, The average dividend yielding stock in the S&P 500 only gives about 2%. But yeah, most people just aren't used to up to five ways. A a lot of people just don't understand all five of those that I, I just described like that. Real estate pays five ways.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. Great perspective. All right, so you, tell me what inflation triple crown means. That's a trademark of yours.
0: What is the inflation triple crown? That means that you benefit specifically from inflation three ways at the same time when you buy an income-producing property with debt. And those three ways are you benefit from asset price inflation, debt debasement, which I touched on, and thirdly is cash flow enhancement. Because in inflationary times, your cash flow typically goes up faster than the rate of inflation. And that's because your biggest expense, that mortgage principal and interest, stays fixed. So to bring some numbers to it and just explain the first of the three crowns in the inflation triple crown is how you benefit through asset price inflation. And, you know, a lot of people use the term like, well, real estate is a really good inflation hedge. They're not wrong, but a hedge just means a defensive position. It really just means you're staying even rather than losing. You're actually profiting from inflation three ways at the same time. So if you, the investor out there, if you buy a million dollars worth of real estate, you can maybe just think of that as an apartment building. Okay, you're going to put 200K down and borrow the other 800K. All right, so say inflation does its thing, and just say inflation is 10% to use easy numbers. And after one year, your $1 million apartment building goes up in price to $1.1 million. And maybe you're thinking, well, wait a second, how in the heck am I any better off? If my building is worth 10% more dollars and each dollar is worth 10% less, Isn't that a hedge? Aren't I right back where I started? And the answer is no, because you got a loan on this property. So the capital price of the entire asset went up 100K, but remember, you've only got 200K of equity in it, skin in the game, that also went up 100K. So your equity just went from 200K to 300K. That's a 50% gain despite just 10% inflation. You just 5X inflation, and that's only one of the three crowns of the inflation triple crown. And some people are like, well, wait, how did that happen? That's because you got the 10% gain on both your 200K of skin in the game and the 800K that you borrowed from the bank. So that's how you're getting ahead, and that's how you profit with real estate. Again, when you have an income-producing property with a loan, you do want that loan. That's how you benefit from inflation.
1: That is just music to my ears. (laughs) All right. Um, What do you mean by don't quit your daydream?
0: Uh, Oh, it's just a little joke I make. You might quit your day job, but don't quit your daydream. And really what it comes down to, and it's not just a joke, is that when you get enough income producing property, Passively, where you have a manager managing it for you, like I have several property managers, um, one manager in each market where I have properties managing my property for me, and they just sent me a rent income minus all expenses, that cash flow check at the end of every month. I can quit my day job and start my daydream because I've opened up enough time to do it.
1: Love that. And finally, uh, financially free beats debt free.
0: Yeah. A lot of people just want to retire their debt and being debt free is not such a bad place to be, but a lot of people work hard and work overtime and eat dirt for decades to retire their debt. Yeah, I'd say, don't worry about that. As long as you have good fixed interest rate debt, especially like we're talking about here with real estate, where the tenant pays that debt for you, they pay all your principal they pay all your interest, and they pay a little cash flow on top of that. That cash flow on top of that creates financial freedom, which is more important than debt freedom. Inflation is passively debasing your debt for you. So I sure wouldn't want to get involved in, for example, making extra principal payments on a mortgage. Like I wouldn't even do that on my own home. In fact, if One makes, say, an extra just $100 principal payment on their mortgage each month. Basically, here's what they're saying to the bank. Hey, Mr. or Mrs. Banker, here's an extra $100. Don't pay me any interest on it. If I need it back, I'll pay you fees, and I'll prove to you that I qualify again. So that's why I don't so much (laughs) want to be debt-free. I'd rather be financially free carry debt have my tenants and inflation debase that debt for me passively at the same time therefore i'm not concerned with that debt that's why financially free beats debt free but but that's a great question
1: well especially if you're locked into low rates like the 3% rates if inflation's at 9% you're you're actually ahead of the game by with borrowing at just 3% don't pay those loans off quickly people keep them and use the money Uh, Elsewhere to make you more money. Okay. Well, Keith, it's always a pleasure to have you here on The Real Wealth Show. You just are a wealth of information.
0: I love talking about this stuff. Thanks for having me again, Kathy.
1: And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can go to realwealthshow.com to get a whole list of resources of professionals who specialize in working with investors, from attorneys to CPAs to property managers and property teams nationwide. Again, that's at realwealthshow.com, and it's free to join.
0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.